Welcome to uh, another episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast. And as always, we are very thankful to our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support. And don't forget that Harbro trade in over 20 countries across the world. So uh, all your Top Lines and Tales listeners can get in touch wherever you are uh, and find out a little bit more about, uh, about what they do and the great service they provide. This week's episode not only covers a character in livestock, but also a modern livestock operation of almost mind-blowing proportions. A while ago, we heard how the three brothers, uh, the Cadzo brothers, created a cow to fill a gap in the market and made it their life's work. Well, this week we have a story of how one man, or one family anyway, could imagine, design, and then breed a sheep to fit the, the modern changing world. Uh, Graham Gilmore from the Tattakeel Stud in New South Wales. Graham, welcome. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure to be here. And Graham, your family origins are in Ireland, I believe. Uh, Tattakeel is actually a place in, in Northern Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, Teddy Kill's a farm in uh, County Fermanagh in Northern Ireland, and uh, that's where my grandfather settled in Australia in 1926. Okay, and you run a, a family farm, we'd call it, there in, in New South Wales. What, what uh, Whereabouts are you, and, and what, what sort of size of farm do you run there, Graham? Uh, we're, we're in the Blue Mountains, about uh, two and a half hours west of Sydney, at about, uh, uh, we're sitting at uh, 1,200 metres. Um, meters, above okay. sea level yeah. in snow country okay. can be green it's still green here at Christmas or um, towards um, January and we're still totally green okay. so okay. it's um, about 32 inch rainfall area although okay. the last couple of years we've had 50 inches so <laughs> the previous years were drought I'm going to say we've all had a change in the weather this time and we're all complaining a drought on our side but uh, it comes and goes maybe and uh, you say you're up there in the mountains so what, well let, let's go through the sheep that's, that you run there Graham you were and have been a top pole Dorset uh, sheep breeders for a number of generations I, I think and broken a few records and uh, you had probably the top flock of, of pole Dorsets in Australia if that's fair to say probably since the 60s We've we've been uh, very dominant in the pole Dorset industry for for a long time and uh, we still have pole dorset so I'm, I'm a passionate pole dorset breeder mm-hmm. um think think they're they're magnificent sheep but times change and uh through exporting dorsets into south america i came across a sheep over there called a santanez that was a head sheep and it was like a light bulb moment that um i thought why do we need wool on the sheep Let- so came home and uh I had uh, two brothers in the business at that stage and they thought I was mad, but uh, said we've got to design a, a sheep around here, not around wool, yeah. because I think there'll be a change in the industry. Okay, well, very foresighted of you, but just go back to the, the Dorsets for a second. I think you had, you had Texels as well for a while, and we'll maybe hear in a few seconds how you did combine all these sheep together into one. But yes. uh, you, you had Texels at that height there, probably not, not the right sheep for the for 1,200 metres. But, but by by line breeding, you, you took the Dorsets up to a, to the top level, and you hold a couple of Dorset sales a year, and as you said, you're, you're top man. And there'd be some world genetics involved in some of those Dorsets there, some UK genetics perhaps? Uh, no, this, uh, the Dorsets, our genetics are basically Australian mm-hmm. uh, and we've been a closed flock for more than 20 years. Okay. Uh, we've, we've been running up to a couple of thousand stud years, but we'd be down more like uh, a thousand years or maybe even less now. And the Texels, but, Texels yeah. how do they go with you? Uh, the Texels were good. Um, Texels have had a big influence in both Australia and New Zealand, but mainly through composite sheep. Okay. There's hardly any of the composite sheep that don't have a a component of Texel in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, no, the Texel were very good. I, I'm uh, still a member of the Texel Society, although my Texel flock is uh, frozen in a liquid nitrogen tank. 
okay. just in case I need to bring it back. But uh, very, very difficult to sell a purebred in Australia now. Is it? And you'll have brought some of those those genetics in from the UK originally with the Texels? Uh, they came from Finland and Holland through via New Zealand. Okay. okay. Um, so that's that's how they got in through the scrapies testing. Uh, they came through New Zealand. Okay. So, and the, both the Paul Dorset and the Texel were the maternal lines that uh, that we used to create the new breed. Okay, so let's go on to this new breed. As you said, you happened on a on a hairy sheep, and and, uh, and the light bulb came on there, and you went along to design the Tatakil Australian White, and that's sort of what this program's about, if you like. And it's a, a designer breed of sheep. Yeah, well, when, the when, light when bulb was, that? was um, yeah. So that's a designer breed of sheep there, and and when. So, what year did you get started with with working on this this well, new sheep? Well, the first the first sheep, the the F ones, the first crosses were only born in two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. So this this hasn't been a long. It hasn't been a long drawn out process. It's just been very intense. You make it sound fairly simple, but uh, I mean, how do you go about designing designing an animal like that? Do you just take a piece of paper well, and say, "Right, we're going to put some of these bits in it." <laughs> well, basically, that's that's right. We put Paldorset and Texel females, and we cross White Dorper and Von Rui genetics and other South African head sheep. We cross them together um, and created a. Just created a, a group of F2 sheep with with those crosses, and then we selected from that group and kept blowing it out with embryo transfer. Yeah. So what's quite unique about this breed is, just in in our own use alone, it's more than twenty five thousand embryo transfers mm. uh, in a, in about a ten or twelve year period. Which is, and is, we is just a, keep flushing the best animals. Which is a massive investment, isn't it? To put that in there, you must have you obviously got absolute faith in what you were doing there for all might be trial and error you must have really believed and as you said you saw the wool industry changing there and, and uh... well where, where do the stage here now that look i've i've been a shearer since i was uh 15 or oh, 16 um and i don't shear anymore but my son's still shear but the problem is you can't sell the wool mm-hmm. we're throwing the we're shearing and throwing the wool away yeah. Yeah. so that's that's on the door since if you're shearing if you want wool sheep, you've got to have merinos to make money yeah. and good merinos. Mm-hmm. So I'm not against the wool industry. It's just if you want to be viable in, in the world today in protein, uh, it's either your protein's wool or it's, or it's meat. Oh. And people are hungry. They're not cold. That's that's a good statement. People are hungry and not cold. You're right. And and broke. Uh, oh, you made a record anyway with Tatakil Premium, who uh, sold, I think, for thirty thousand. And we'll go on to your recent sale in a second. But I mean, that must have yeah. been that must have been a big turning point for you to get some of your investment well, back. It was. Uh, you've obviously done a fair bit of homework, Andy. Yes, we've been right at the top of the Dorset industry. Um, look, we we were buying record price rams, uh, not in. In about 1981, we paid 24000 for a ram back then, wow. uh, which flock rams are making $150, where flock rams are two or 3000 now, uh, and, the, and the record prices aren't much more than what they were back in, in the 80s. So it, it's just a change. Um, we're, seeing, we're seeing a lot of change in the, in the industry here, and, and it's getting a lamb away quickly that, that makes you the money. The, the wool is actually a cost to you. And at the moment, um, a, a wool pelt is probably worth about a dollar twenty to a dollar fifty. And if it's a Sean uh, Sean Lamb's pelt, it's it's minus a dollar fifty. Wow. Is what they're charging to get rid of the pelts in some abattoirs. That's terrible. So yeah, we're looking down the barrel of um, we're up to about two dollars sixty for our for our pelts on the the Australian white head sheet, and that's because of the leather. 
Okay. So it's um, okay. Let, let, yeah. We're just cut, we're just cutting the costs of 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 running sheep. You're cutting the costs. You're cutting the labour. Labour's a big problem. Is finding labour. So yeah. all of those things point towards a change in the industry. And my original start in the in the breed was Dorset Horns, and I'm passionate about them. But I don't have any left because you get, they're impossible to sell. That's that's right. There's too many people keep sheep for for the wrong reasons. But let's just move on to the Australian white. In just 12 years on, I think from where you said you you had the sale this year, and I'm going to read out some of the stats here because uh, th- these figures I might have to read twice because people won't actually believe them. But you <laughs> recently sold a ram called Premium for 240 thousand Australian dollars, a ram record which beat your record from last year, which I think was 165 thousand. You sold a female for, for a record of 26 thousand. Your sale grew just short of five million dollars i think uh, this last year 30 stud rams 30 stud rams averaged forty-two thousand. Thirty stud rams averaged forty-two thousand. Three hundred stock rams averaged over eight thousand in lamb use averaged six thousand seven hundred empty use averaged four thousand that's just mind-blowing statistics and in 12 years to take you to that that kind of level the, the embryo transfers it, paid, it paid off a bit the the top prices were up a little bit on the year before but the averages were back uh because we put we put more numbers in the year before. Our rams average, uh, the stud rams averaged a similar amount, but that forty odd thousand. We had another sale in February where they, ten rams averaged fifty thousand. Yeah. Um, and it, look, it's just a case of people are, are happy with the what the breed's doing. Um, they're happy with the consistency of it, and yeah, it's just a changing time. Like I don't expect that those uh, prices will probably hold in for a long time, but uh, we run commercial Australian whites ourselves, and uh, there's a lot more money in them because of the lack of import costs. Okay. Well, it's, the input costs, you're right, and as you said, developing an animal to suit your system, but obviously suiting a lot of other people's systems when uh, you've got such hot property that you've got there, and, you, and you've traded as the meat sheep of the future, and I can quite believe that, but let's just sort of stick with the hair a little bit. A hair-based sheep with not much wool on, don't need shearing. They can live in all sorts of conditions, and you just told me you're 1,200 metres up there. I wouldn't want a bear sheep stuck on a mountain in, in, the, in the winter there, so uh, yeah, they, they can live everywhere. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the amazing thing, Andy. They're actually stronger than the wool sheep, particularly the lambs because they're born with about two centimetres or um, three quarters of an inch of, of hair. The hair's a hollow fibre, it's, um, so therefore they're actually warmer than what a wool lamb is when they're born. Okay, all right. And they're, they're, it's almost like, um, and the parent sheep, it's almost like they're like polar bears. They, they thicken up in the winter and they handle the cold conditions much better than um, much better than our wool sheep do. Incredible. And, and the wet as well? Um, yeah, well, the wet doesn't worry them. Um, they, they'll, they'll be out grazing in snow where most of the, our wool sheep would be looking for shelter. Okay. So the, the cold doesn't actually worry them and the, they're, they're just like a polar bear with the, with the hair coat. So it wasn't a case of just designing a shedding wool sheep where the wool would drop off because I'd been, been in that situation with white daubers and in this cold area, they just didn't lose that wool. So... The hair was that was the answer to me. Was they had to be a hair base? That's where the von Rui came in. It was the real hair base. And t- tell me about yeah, the von Rui. That'll, that'll live in a desert, won't it? It does. Um, they're they're a desert hardy desert sheep. Um, so yeah, the combination of, of the other British breeds or the British and the European breed in there have probably helped. And then the fact that they've been developed in this cold climate, uh, they had to survive it to mm. to be in the mix. So. 
And, and you, um, you mentioned the Dorper. I've looked at the Dorper breed, and they are yeah, quite a spectacular-looking Dorper, the ones with the, with the black faces that, that we looked at. But uh, they do have a few failings, don't they? And as you said, they're not they're maybe not the hardiest sheep. I looked at bringing a few into Scotland. No, and they, look, out of it, really. most breeds are very good in their in their environment, in the, in the environment that suits them. Uh, the problem for me with the Dorper was its growth rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted something that grew more like a bold dorset. So we're, we're targeting at uh, four and a half to five and a half months old, a 24 kilo lamb, and the the dorper hits the hits the wall at a at a lower weight than that. So if you're after a smaller lamb, they're fine, but it didn't suit what we were doing. Well, we're not just talking a lamb in volume from you. We're talking lamb in, in high quality, and we'll talk about that in in a few seconds because that's where your Australian white really comes to the fore. But let's just see other places. I mean, you say the lamb, you know, the sheep can live inside too, and they can live in sort of warm conditions. I mean, is there nowhere this animal can't can't survive? Well, we've we've got them in um, in Inner Mongolia and in China, where they're they're at four, minus forty five degrees, and they've got them in sheds in the winter. Um, we've got them in in Canada in pretty cold conditions. In the US, we've got them, um, they've been sent there to Alabama, which is uh, very hot and humid. Um, There's some in New Zealand, uh, quite a few other countries as well. Um, So they're they're in a broad range of areas, but they'll handle the cold, uh, they'll handle the heat. Uh, They'll readily finish on dry feed or green feed. Um, So they're, yeah, they've just been designed for specific purpose to meet a fast-growing modern sheep that's a head sheep because if we go back far enough all the sheep basically have a background of a morphland sheep okay just uh, same as dogs um, all going back to wolves yeah the morphland sheep was the background and it was basically um, back to the future but we had to put a carcass on these animals that was a modern carcass. That's exactly where I'm going to come in, uh, the, the modern carcass with the confirmation. But just before we go there, it's also a, a self-replacing uh, sheep as well, isn't it? So you're a bit like the Ling was designed to do, where you can actually be breeding females uh, and turning out females and turning out rams out of the same thing without bringing other breeds into it. So you've got this thing genetically nailed down. Lost to any. Well, that's, uh, yes, I'm not a believer in that you need uh, maternal and terminals. I don't, uh, I don't believe that you need that. You can cover both bases. Um, a lot of cattle breeds cover both bases. Um, I developed the breed to, um, to also be polyesterous so that in many of the places are they're lambing uh, every eight months and in some cases some years are lambing every six months. Right. So we're getting fairly high percentages. We're not chasing 200% lambs. Most of the travels around the world where you find sheep that give you uh, 200% plus the lambs are, are not and those litters are not very big lambs so I'd rather one and a half good ones each time they lamb and uh, get them in lamb again so so we're, we've got plenty of our clients that are doing 200% lambs a year okay. Okay. but it's in a, it's uh, over two years they're doing 400% in two years with three joinings Lambing them three times, that's right, which the Dorset, of course, was known for and has been known for uh, for eternity. Well, sheep, the Dorset, the Dorset yep, the Dorset, the Dorper. Um, and the, the way that we did this, Andy, is through the embryo transfer, if if the sheep were flushed out of season and they didn't they didn't flush, they weren't part of the brood. Okay, okay. Fairly straightforward test. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty simple stuff. Without the, the use of the embryo transfer, I haven't got enough years left to be where we are now. Mm. Uh, this, this is a lifetime uh, that's 
of, of breeding that's done over a handful of years through selection and embryo transfer. It, it also identified the most uh, prolific of our of our females as well. So the ones that had uh, that flushed big numbers of embryos, they made up the brood. Yeah, and it it is as you say, it was lifetime's work for the Cadzo brothers when they developed the ling, and you and they never had the you know the benefit of ET of course no. back then. But I mean, with sheep as well, it's a faster process. But to turn this around in twelve years is is incredible. And where it gets more incredible, I think, or from from where I sit, uh, I had a conversation on one of our podcasts over Christmas with Scott Brown, and he said the lamb industry ha- is changing, and it has to change because we need to be looking more at uh, at intramuscular fat. And at the time, IMF was something I didn't really know much about. Um, and he sort of raised this and we had a chat about it and, and a discussion if you like and uh, he said me our, our top rams in the UK were sort of 4.8% intramuscular fat in our elite rams and then yes. uh, you guys come out there with figures which blow that out of the water don't you? Well look what we've found in all the testing we've done Andy is that uh, the, the game changer for us is not the IMF it's the melting point of that IMF mm. and if you go to a consumer these days what they don't like about lamb is probably the smell of it cooking mm-hmm. and the fat sitting in your mouth. So the reason for that is the high melting point of, of lamb. So that fat melts at a pretty high melting point, normally about 42 degrees on a, on a raw product. And what we've managed to develop in this Australian wide is averages of about 34 degrees. So it's the melting point that, that we think makes the difference more so than you certainly want some IMF, but if you've got an IMF that's a very high melting point and you put more of that IMF in there that's a high melting point fat, then that fat sets on your palate and that's not what that's not what the consumer wants. Wow, okay. And I know you've done some trials, we'll come on to maybe some trials with the yeah. uh, the, the, the universities on, you know, this, is, this is really technical stuff, but just, I mean, FMP is something, again, I hadn't heard of until until this week. I'm, every day's a school day for me on this podcast. And uh, <laughs> uh, but well, It's been a, <laughs> been a learning curve for us as well. But, we, we didn't know about this. Okay, but to bring that melting point down, then what you're saying is, is the fat within the lamb, not the fat on the outside, but the fat within the muscle, melts that bit faster and that bit quicker. So you can, you can maybe cook it at a slower temperature and, and, and the, and the yes. fat will still drain away, or is it the fact that it, it will drain away altogether because it's got that lower melting point? Uh, well, the, the fat, the, the chefs that are cooking this, and, and we are selling it uh, in many places uh, in, in top restaurants against some of the, the premium uh, protein products uh, like Wagyu or, or uh, tuna, um, what they're saying to us is that when you eat some of this Australian white lamb, even the subcutaneous fat when it's cooked, it's like having olive oil in your mouth rather than a lamb fat. And so that's, that's it's, a, it's a huge change. We're, we're looking at, we've, we've done a lot of testing on our dorsets, comparing them to our, our Australian whites. We don't compare other breeds. And it's not our job to do that. Uh, and we're out on our own saying that melting point's an issue. Okay. Uh, no, I'm not aware of anybody else that's saying that. Um, we're looking at, uh, say, 34 degrees to 40, 42 degrees. It's a big difference. Mm, and and those, those temperatures, when, when the lamps cook, those, um, the fat melting point's lower, 10 or 15% as well. So uh, your, your, your body temperature's around the 37 um, so if you're putting 42 degrees in there, it sets on your palate. And, but with this, you can drink a cold glass of water, wine, beer, 
and it won't sit in your mouth. Okay, I can understand understand that. And you mentioned then premium products too nervously, but uh, Wagyu is a big, often a big discussion point on on this program because Wagyu is a highly expensive and a very much a premium product. And we'll go on to maybe the, maybe the premiums that you're getting for your lamb in a minute. But so you you pairing yourself to a Wagyu type lamb, which again I think is what we discussed on our podcast a few a few weeks ago. Well, there's yeah, that's that's correct. We didn't draw that. Um, that analogy others that were in the industry did and it was drawn because of the melting point because Wagyu melts at a lower melting point. Okay. It's not possible to make other breeds uh, melt at that same temperature as what Wagyu does. The difference that we have with Wagyu is we're basically a pasture-fed animal. We're not, we're not grain-fed. It would only be supplemented with grain in, uh, in really dry times. Okay. Okay. So we're, we're still trying to be clean and green. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I can't see in the future that feeding grain to to animals that convert like sheep and cattle is not, uh, I don't think it's common sense. So it has to be an absolute premium product mm-hmm. in a Wagyu to make sense. But if it's just ordinary uh, ordinary cattle, you can't get a premium that would make you want to feed a lot of them. So, yeah. so we try to design around finishing on grass. Okay. Um, and that gives you, of course, another... Grain. And, and there's been a big problem in the sheep industry particularly in Australia, on animals that now uh, you can't finish a lot of these meat animals unless they're supplemented with grain mm-hmm. because the, the rams have been selected on grain feeding for so many generations now that the one of the more lucrative uh, engineering things in Australia is uh, lick feeders, grain okay, feeders, yep. where they, they lick the grain out of the feeder. Okay. And, and a lot of people just have to use them or they can't finish their lambs. So... <laughs> Uh, we were very determined to try and have an animal that would finish on grass. And, and, they're, they're ruminants. And you've, they should be finishing on grass. And you've not even mentioned the, uh, the, the the carbon footprint aspect of that as well, which, of course, is another selling point if, if the animals are all grass-fed, as, as we know everybody yeah, is. It is, but, but the carbon footprint, we've got people in Australia saying that they're, they're lot feeding their lambs, but the uh, the carbon footprint of the grain they're feeding belongs to the people who grow the grain. Well, I don't go along with that. I, I think it makes sense to um, to have the animal do what it's supposed to do. It's a ruminant. Yeah, it make all makes a lot of sense when you put it together like that, Graham. And and and. We know, or we've discussed before, that the IMF is a highly heritable trait. Uh, um, you're, obviously, your breeding now will be very much data-driven. And uh, But uh, how about the FMP? Is that heritable as well? Oh, the fat melting point's more heritable than the IMF. Uh, so our, our better rams are uh, throwing off grass IMF of 6%. Mm-hmm. But remembering that that's a long, long way behind what top-end Wagyu is. So it's... Um, but whether it's 4% or 6% in the trials that we've done, it doesn't change the, the softness and the eating quality of the meat as long as your melting points are low enough. Okay. So they're, they're all highly, highly um, heritable, and, and we've had four papers uh, that have been peer-reviewed and put in uh, international magazines on what we've been doing So through the, through the university, and we're funding that. We're funding it basically ourselves. We've had some help from the CSIRO in Australia um, and and a couple of other government organisations that have, have been a bit of a help, but we're not doing it through industry. Okay. And, and going back to the data, will it be, is this just basic into lamb plan there? Have you guys got your own special scientific data that you can take this stuff forward with? No, no, no I don't. Uh, I'm not a proponent of lamb plan or, or any EBVs because they're, they're just being manipulated in my, in my opinion. Um, 
we have we have done a lot of scanning as far in our dorsets with um, eye muscle area, um, but by the time we select all these lambs, rams are selected on eye muscle area, we've already used the better ones anyway. So uh, I don't even weigh the sheep, Andy. No. I weigh them with my eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been no data as far as that on weights or um, on loin measurements or any of that. It's all been done on visual selection through our hands and our eyes. Wow. Okay. Uh, the data that we don't have and we can't measure is is IMF, fat melting points and omega three. So I can't I can't measure those. I can't I can't see it. But as uh, for seeing an animal that has shape, body depth, spring of rib, breed type, uh, balance, all those things you can see better than you can do it on numbers. <laughs> and numbers are for those that uh, if people want to use numbers, that's fine, but I don't use them in my pole dorsets either. Okay. We, we are traditional stud breeders. We're, we're not computer jockeys. <laughs> we we had uh, a mutual friend, I think, uh, PJ Budler, on the, on the podcast a while ago who judges cattle all over the world, and he came up with very much the same thing, which I think rankled a few people by saying that uh, you know, EBVs are just estimated and you guys are going with actuals rather than, than the estimates. And uh, Well, that's, that's what we're working on is actuals. I, when I said... When I send the data in, <clears throat> so we started by taking uh, samples between the uh, uh, between the twelfth and thirteenth rib um, and sending that sample that meat sample away for the university to test it. And I can't I can't change the figures; they are what they are. Let's, let's, uh, as soon as you've got an estimation of anything, um, a lot of the estimations are put in by the breeders. So I can't put anything in that comes back to me as what it is. Um, I can't alter it. And then I select from it, and and then we look at the heritability of that. So the heritability of a of an EBV, when you're told the, that the accuracies are a certain percentage, those accuracies are more to do with with data entries and actual accuracies, where ours is accuracies. So uh, it's exactly what it is. When it comes back, and we get a a melting point, uh, the omegas, and the the IMF on that animal. That's what it is. It's not. It's not a guess. We'll, we'll go, go on to real. go on to the meager in a second. But just to, just to rewind that a second, I think you said you take actual sample from from live sheep. How's that done? Well, we we do that. Uh, we had to go through ethics committees, and we have a vet comes in and he takes he takes a sample about the size of your your thumbnail, about five ten grams, and we we freeze that in liquid nitrogen and send it to the university to be to be tested. Uh, out of a live sheep uh, yeah well it was too it was too slow it was too expensive to kill to kill these animals uh, to get data on them so we went through looking at doing biopsies with human biopsy machines but we couldn't get enough of a sample so we um, we're actually doing a, a biopsy uh, knocking the, the sheep out putting them in the embryo cradles lying them down uh, each animal's taken in the same spot and then uh, we send all the information off to the university, and they send back what the real data is, the raw data on those on those things. Bloody hell! So it uh, it's been it's been an expensive exercise, but an exercise well worth doing. And we didn't know that we had this unique uh, these some of these unique traits that are in this breed. We didn't know we had them until we actually started brooding, and we noticed the difference in the meat, and a lot of others noticed it. And that's that's where it started. We we found someone to do the testing on it that had been uh, testing 
lambs for eating quality for about 25 years. And um, he was amazed. He couldn't believe what it was. I'm, I'm, I'm rarely speechless on this, but basically what, what to, to recap what you're saying is you went out to breed a sheep that was self-replacing and uh, wouldn't need shearing and needed lower inputs, and you came up with such a premium product that you didn't know you had that uh, now you're right on the, on the on top of your game. That's, it, it, that's, not, that's not luck, Graham. I'm sure you're not a lucky. That's, you don't put that down to luck, but <laughs> well, it sounds it, like it to me. <laughs> well, it is, it is luck. A lot of people have said to me, well, they'd be claiming it. Well, I'm, uh, once we realised we had it, we've done a lot of testing to enhance it, sure. but then people are saying, well, how low are you going to make these melting points? I said, well, it's it's very good eating meat now. And if you push one thing too far, you'll affect something else. Sure. So uh, we've been told constantly if it, you push for uh, more muscular sheep that you end up losing eating quality. But these animals have got quite good carcasses, uh, plenty of shape in them, and we haven't lost eating quality. But you've got to have fat. You, you must have fat there to make the meat well. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's this melting point that, um, that makes a difference. And we can't fool some of the top chefs in the world. We're not, we're not in that game. We, we're buying our own uh, clients' lambs back from them from a vast range of areas, and they're being marketed uh, in all different areas. And we're not getting complaints because there's a consistency because the sheep is line bred it's it's homozygous it's not a composite this is i think where where again a conversation that we were having on our on our rather flippant uh, christmas podcast a few weeks ago saying that by <laughs> using composites you, you you lose the uniformity in it and it sounds like you've gone down that uniformity route and got them right and you say about carcasses i've seen some of the videos of the sheep that you've got there and we'll post some on our on our facebook page there they're they're serious carcass machines as well they're not just a, a hill sheep they've got uh, they've just got carcasses no. in, in, in abundance we, we have a lot of uh, live to dead weight uh, through the abattoirs doing 50, 52%. So, okay. yeah, we're in, in, um, in Newell, so in Carcassonne. Mm. Can, can I just ask, basically, lambs are obviously at a certain size before they start putting on the back fat, and back fat is something that, uh, that is undesirable in, in lamb and something that puts a lot of people off. So are we still talking very low back fat, although you've got uh, a fairly high iron? No, 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 you've got... No, uh, we, we want a three or four score. We'll even take five score lambs, which is the, the top score. We want fat. The fat's the hero. Okay. Um, the, the fat um, uh, that we sell the lamb with the, with the fat cap on. Okay. Uh, so whether it's a rack or rump um, or a loin, we sell it with the fat on, not, not to neuter the fat. Okay. And that fat, is that, does that external fat then have the same FMP? It, no, it's um, it has a higher melting point, but it's still much lower. That's lower than, than than standard. Yeah, it's much lower than conventional lamb. Okay, and one more thing, let's just while we're on this this carcass and this eating quality, which to me is a fascinating subject, and making mouth water despite the fact it's only breakfast time. <laughs> um, the, is that you do you mentioned a couple of times the omega three, and of course omega three everybody will know is that something that we all want. It's a desirable thing, and seemingly somehow or other you've got uh, you've got an abundance of that as well. It's uh, Professor Adouli Malou that's been doing all the, the work on this. Uh, the omega-3s are running at about 32 milligrams per 100 grams, and that's omega-3s of EPA and DHA, which are the two omegas that the human body can convert. So if you get your fish oil tablets and look, look up on the fish oil, they'll quote EPA and D, DHA. Uh, that's the two you need. Uh, we've had our highest animals have done uh, nearly 70 milligrams, and if you compare that to salmon, salmon's 200. 
So we're, we're right up there where normal lamb is about grass-fed lambs around the 10 or 15. Uh, we're, we're more than double that. And there's a direct correlation with low melting points and, and high omegas in the Australian white. So the lower your melting point, the higher the omegas. Okay, a win-win, a win-win. And obviously you've got... Well, a... it's, it's, it's some, something we haven't been... We've been talking about it. We get a lot of, a lot of people that throw a lot of mud at us and say that it's all hype, but um, we're not trying to fool those people and we're certainly not trying to fool anyone. We're selling it in restaurants with some of the top chefs in the world and they're all saying the same thing. They haven't had a lamb product like it. Okay, but we're saying a unique taste, and obviously a unique taste, a unique animal that you're working at, and now what you need to do, we all need to do, is to gain a premium on that. You've told me the costs that have gone into the you know, the ET side of it and the development and the, and the marketing and what have you, uh, to gain a, a premium price product, and how, how do you get that? I mean, where's that? Where's the premium coming from now? Well, the premium, we're buying our own uh, clients' lambs back and selling it through a, a product called Magra. Yeah, so Ma- Magra is uh, where we're selling the lamb back through internationally, and it's a, it's a branded product, Margaret, and it, the name comes from Martin and Graham. It's, uh, it's M-A-R-G-R-A. Okay. Um, and Martin, unfortunately, didn't get to uh, to see this to its fruition. We lost him about five years ago with a burst aorta. Sorry to hear that. Uh, when he was 52. So uh, he was he was uh, very, very much part of it, as my two sons and, and my wife are heavily involved. We've got a new, unique group of people working on this. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that we're buying that lamb back and processing it, uh, cutting it into different cuts to what most people would see in lamb, and then it's being marketed to the restaurant trade. Okay. Um, and that's that's in we've been sixty top end restaurants in uh, the east coast of, of Australia, okay. and it's also sold in Singapore. Um, we've been in Dubai. We've been uh, we're in Los Angeles. Um, we're we're even on the menu in uh, Wolfgang Puck's uh, restaurant in um, Beverly Hills, wow. which is one of the premium restaurants in Los Angeles. Okay. So let's just rewind a second then. We didn't quite get to the numbers of sheep that you do run there, because obviously you're running a lot of sheep, but all yours are stud sheep. So what yeah. sort of numbers do you run at home? Well, we're running about 1,000 pole dorset ewes um, at the moment as stud ewes, and they're the only wool sheep we have on the place. Uh, probably a couple of thousand stud Australian whites and 4,000 commercial ewes. Right. So there's, it's a fair operation and, and combined with um, with a small Angus stud as well. We'll come on to the Angus in, in a second. So, But you're buying a lot of this lamb back and you've got an... You, you've, you will have developed, or you were, as you said, your, your brother was involved and in, in the rest of you developed this outlet for a premium um, price product. I mean, that that takes a lot of market. I know about marketing a little bit, and you know, that takes a lot of <laughs> a lot of marketing and a lot of it, money to put behind that to get that product out <clears> there. Well, if your product's the same as everything else, so you, you're doomed to fail. You've got to have a point of difference. Mm-hmm. So... When, when you go into any butcher shop, and it doesn't matter, I've even made my way into Harrods in, uh, in London just to, to see the, the meat hall there, and, and what I noticed was all the lamb's the same price. Mm-hmm. The beef's all different prices mm-hmm. because it's different eating quality. Mm-hmm. So um, you get what you pay for. So we, we are a dearer product. We charge more for it. We pay more for it uh, back to our clients. They're pretty happy about that. And then, in turn, they're paying more for their commercial rams as well. I could see that, <laughs> but the the um, 
so we're talking you're you are they're, they're selling the product back to you so you're the one providing them with a premium because this is kind of the stumbling point that we had it's okay providing or i'm talking uk-wide here saying that we need to produce a better product and a better eating product and what have you but there's with no premium to 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 back that up there no. we're, we're all producing the, the the same the same product at the cheapest cost and there's there's nothing to provide us well, with an additional the, cost. The, the difference the difference in most british breeds or uh, I, uh, there is a difference in texel meat I'm certainly aware of that. Um, doesn't smell quite as much when it's cooked. It retains all the moisture when it's cooked. Um, so there are differences, but they're not they're not substantial. It's like Shorthorn, Angus, um, Hereford. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you move on to some of the Euro broods that are a bit leaner, but then you come into the Wagyu brood and you've got one that's completely different. And that's what that's what the Australian wine sure. is. They're, they're completely different. A, a uh, whilst they're still sheep, they're uh, they're just it's a different flavour. It's not a strong flavoured meat. It's uh, quite mild, but it's uh, very soft on the palate. Um, so we're yeah, you've got to have everything. All those things have got to be lined up. And, and I think breeding the sheep is the easy thing. Mm-hmm. Marketing a meat product is uh, very very difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you obviously are making inroads into that and, and doing well by the and demand, obviously, for your for your stud sheep. And let's sort of go through the stud sheep a little bit, if you like. How many how many other flocks would there be of Australian whites in and across Australia now? Uh, stud stud flocks is one hundred and eighty registered with the um, with the breed society. So that was something we also had to set up yeah. was a breed society, and um, we're keeping strict controls on that and stopping people. Like already, people are deciding that they can reinvent it and cross other breeds with it and turn it into a composite. Well, we don't allow that. They've got to remain pure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there is a market for comp- so composite sheep there, and you've got you know, competition. I know one or two, I won't mention names, but other two people out there that are breeding composites in various ways. But as you said, you sound like you've got a, you've got a USB. Most of the composites in Australia now are trying to reinvent themselves as um, shedded sheep overnight. Mm-hmm. It, nearly every one of the composite breeders is trying to is trying to reinvent themselves as a... Um, as a shedded sheep, um, we're just a shedded sheep. We started as a composite, mm-hmm. and through line breeding them, they're, they're now a purebred and very, very consistent, uh, consistent type in the head. Um, the majority have black feet, black noses, black eyes, with a with a white body. So you can do all sorts of different things when you're line breeding, even to the stage where anything that came up with any colour in the early crosses. We put in uh, into another breed. We call a Martin, more after my brother, okay. Martin, and uh, that sheep is is identical in genetics to the Australian white. There's been nothing else differently put into it, except it's black instead of white. Okay. Right. So there's genetic diversity for yep. you. We have we have a line of black sheep and we have a line of white ones, okay. and they're identical in their genetic makeup. Happens in a few breeds. A lot of people don't want them, but there's always a, there's a novelty value for a black sheep in a lot of places, and hey, maybe they've got their yeah. they've got their place too. Yeah. And, and just to go back to the sheep, you said earlier on that that you can breed them uh, three times in in two years, and and you've tucked all your ewe lambs as well. So you you mate your ewe lambs at uh, at seven months old. Yes, yeah. Ewes are ewes are put to the rams uh, or tupping as you'd call it in in uh, the UK or New Zealand uh, at seven months, and we normally. Uh, we'd normally even out of season get uh, eighty or ninety percent of those years in lamb. Okay, well that certainly brings you brings your margins up fairly quickly, doesn't it? As long as it doesn't, doesn't oh, isn't very detrimental quick, to very their quickly. growth. So a lot of my clients are getting very big dollars for their commercial use. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Like if if a normal 
uh, what we call a first cross ewe, which would be like your mule. Mm-hmm. Um, if she's making three hundred dollars, we're at six, seven, eight hundred dollars. So it's it, there's yeah there's a market difference. Now that that'll even out in time when the numbers rise, but the numbers are uh, still being sought after because the shearers are less and the and the wool off off um, composite sheep or any of your strong wool sheep, it, it's it's not a saleable product. No. No. And they do have some wool. I was not saying they don't have wool. We might have mentioned this earlier on, but they do grow some wool in the winter and then shed it again. So they have a covering of wool during the winter. They they have a little bit of downs on some of them that grow in the tip of the wool, but basically it's it's hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just thick hair. There's not there's not much wool in it, very little. And uh, our the, what we're looking for in the shedding when they shed the hair is that they shed it off the back. We don't want them holding it on the back because. In too many countries, the fly issue is still there. So if the animal holds anything on its back, it's still a fly trap. Of course. So most of our sheep shed from the – they'll shed off the back. A lot of them will lose it, like um, a doona coming off a, off a bed. It just comes off in one big sheep. Really? And treads into the ground, yeah. And and because yeah. they've got no wool, does that affect the meat yield as well? I mean, are we talking higher or lower because, because there's no wool on there? Uh, high, higher. That's what I'm saying. Meat yield from live to dead. Um, most of them are doing sort of 50, 52 percent, where we would normally see probably more like 40, 46 percent on a wool sheep, okay. on the better wool sheep. There's the profit right there. And, and, and... But while while they're not growing wool, they're um, and the analogy I would use is if you've got uh, chickens that are laying eggs, they're not growing meat. Cows that are milking uh, are not are not growing the same amount of meat. Like so if they're growing wool, uh, they're going to put some of that protein they're taking in into the wool growth. So they're not going to grow as, as well as one that's, like, they've got their hair, they don't grow anymore. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, and no wool, as you said, no, no lice or burrs. I mean, it has its advantages, isn't it? Just not, not having the Well, wool. I think, I, I think uh, well, we haven't seen, I haven't got lice on the property and, and I haven't had anybody complaining about lice. Lice has been a big issue in Australia when they moved to, uh, to the poor on lice control, and there's not many war places uh, that haven't had a problem with lice at some stage. So, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen the Australian whites, but, yeah, they may get it. Cattle get lice too. It would affect performance, but it's not affecting your income. And another thing that you mentioned there, Graham, was black feet. And I know I've, it's been said that black feet tend to be better for lameness. And uh, uh, Dorpers have a little bit of a reputation for, for, for bad feet, I think. So, But you've, you've kept the black feet side of that in because that, that keeps in. We, the black feet have only come from the Texel. That was the only shoot that was in there. Um, so we've, we've concentrated on that black foot. The, the main thing with the black foot is uh, that they don't grow as much. And the white feet are very, very much... Uh, inclined to grow, particularly in wetter conditions. So uh, if there was any anything about the breed that I'd like to improve, it would be the strength of their feet because we do have two desert sheep in there, but they're still much, much stronger than some of the traditional options that are out there. But they're not as strong as what a wilty pole or a wilshire would be because uh, they haven't they haven't had gener- a lot, 100 years in in wet conditions, so they're getting stronger and stronger all the time. But that would be the one area we would 
we would improve them in. Okay, that certainly has been said of the Dorpers coming from the South Africa dry country to bring them into the wet places like yeah. like Scotland, for instance, that uh, yeah, the feet the, the, the feet side of it start become an issue, and that obviously very quickly goes into goes against your your profit margin. And move on something else that you yes. something else that you mentioned was temperament, and I never really considered temperament in a sheep as being a problem, except maybe the little wild bastards on the on the mountains of North Scotland. But uh, generally, the temperament <laughs> isn't, isn't an issue. But you've got good temperament sheep as well. You bred for that. Uh, temperament we've we've seen as a big issue. Um, the sheep the sheep are very inquisitive. They're more like cattle where they'll come up to you and if you're working a tractor near a gateway or something or ploughing a paddock or sowing one, they'll, they'll come up and have a look like cattle would. So they they're very uh, very much hold in mobs. They they graze the paddock together. They don't spread out all over it, and they're they're quite intelligent animals. And and the consistency in this is um, something that in the early stages temperament was an issue with some of the breeds that we put in doing the two south african breeds and we didn't use ram if they didn't have a good temperament because temperance very if if the temperament's uh, a bit iffy you won't find them doing well okay no fair enough so it's not just a temperament for yourselves it's a temperament to is detriment to the sheep sheep moving on yeah yeah okay and, and yeah definitely and we you, you i think you mentioned uh you know, snips maybe we didn't but you were looking at doing um genomic tests as well uh here on on feed efficiency and and uh and lab tests on on all these things and you're sending snips off for for, for all sorts of different different things they're just still trying to keep maintain your your, your breed and take it forward yes we <clears throat> so for, moving on from our uh, testing where we were taking samples, the university's done so much testing, they've identified the SNPs that run around those areas. So we now we now can do blood tests on those animals okay. rather than a than a full biopsy, and then we're we're selecting for those traits. We've also done some work on on feed efficiency, uh, or the the university has, and one of our clients. So we're we're looking at all that all the time. But most of those things. As a traditional breeder, you can select for. Okay. Um, you know, it's it, as long as you don't kid yourself, you can select for any of those traits. And and my training as a as a fifteen year old was from a, a polled horse breeder by the name of Gus Taylor that had the Lynchbury Stud, very famous breeder in uh, in the polled horse industry, and probably set it up in Australia. His genetics were were vastly sought after, and he just told me uh, as a 15 year old there are three things you must do in breeding one you must line breed two you must line breed and three you must line breed and then he, he did go on to explain to me that crossing uh, half brother half sister uh, father and daughter and all those things you can find out very quickly where where the faults lay um, by looking at the the problems that it creates not the best parts but the get all your good animals out and then look at the look at the ones that aren't so good in those double crosses and and then select in your top end to fix the problem so that's basically what we've done all our lives I didn't listen to him hard enough when I was 15 but by the time I was 30 I'd worked out that he was right because I'd tried crossing different bloodlines and and most of our breeds these days have had other breeds put into them for short it's short gain but long-term pain yeah. You bring too many other problems in. Sure, and, and you're right. That, that, that was, I've heard that said from some people, older generation that they're right. If you want to find the faults in your animals, then breed them tight enough, and the faults will turn up. And no, absolutely sound advice to to anybody. And hey, the line breeding well, line breeding is a science, but it's a science that uh, most breeders will understand, and those that don't, as you said, are, are, are clutching at. Well, uh, well, I think the 
the modern thing on this uh, inbreeding coefficient, a lot of people are conf they're confronted by an inbreeding coefficient that they think it's a problem. But in, the way I look at it, unless it's reasonably high, you've got no heritability. Yeah, sure. So if you go back as far as, um, and, and the first podcast that I listened um, of yours, Andy, was um, on Robert Bakewell. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, like I, I, that, I was mesmerised by, by that podcast. That was... Um, and that's how I found your podcast originally was was looking up stuff on um, on Bakewell. Mm -hmm. So incredible man, in front of his time, wasn't he? Well, yeah, I, absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and had the time and the means to experiment back then, which a lot of people don't have these days, and that's why we take lessons from those that do. And obviously, you've you've made this your life's work, if you like, to to run these experiments to, and to come up with a premium product and and. Evidently, it's it's worked for you, and as you said, now you got the Magra product that uh, you're putting out there, which is obviously growing, and the export side of it. Are you getting some of those into the UK? Can I buy some? Uh, we're we're looking at we're like the UK is very difficult to get into from a genetic side because we don't we don't test for scrapies here. So, um, but we are we've done some testing, and we're working with David Rosset uh, David Rossiter from Hooshflock, who's got. Um, He's uh, got some ex-Lanners. He's at Kingsbridge, okay. and he's got Paul Dorsets as well. And we're we're working with him to try and come up with some single copies that we can get some some embryos into England. Hopefully, that'll be sooner rather than later. <laughs> it's not an easy since our country decided to it was no longer European. It's made our our job a little bit harder for all of us, and uh, getting stuff in and out won't uh, won't be easy. Well, well, it's a, that's a fascinating story, and I'm just going to move on because from the sheep, because the time's moving on as well. Is that you also breed, yes. you, you run a lot of kelpies, I'd imagine, around your your sheep, and then you started breeding those as well. And I believe you do you not hold the record for a for a kelpie bitch. Uh, my son bought a Kelby bitch that's a record, 49,000. 49,000, um, that's right. Okay, you bought Yeah, one. well, it's, it's a lot of money for a dog, but uh, Ross's explanation was pretty pretty good. He said, you're, you're dealing with expensive sheep. We need dogs that solve problems, not cause them. <laughs> and and the, the bitch Eve is, uh, she's been bought as a breeding bitch, but the way she works is very similar to dogs that he's, that he's got. It's the same genetic lines mm. that are in them, so basically... Uh, we'll be line breeding her as well, and he's he's been breeding dogs for quite a number of years, and the the dogs that he's got are all the same bloodlines. Yeah, line breeding is something that's been. I've got a I've got a border terrier here, and I looked it up, and she's a fifteen percent inbreeding coefficient. I think that's something that's fairly been standard yeah. in 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 the dog world, and again, something you can do yes. you can do fairly quickly. Of course, there's no there's no embryo transfer in the in the dog world, not at the moment in our part of the world anyway. And and move on. Then you mentioned at the, the top of the show, you've got a few angers, and I think that's a fairly new operation for yourselves there started with a lot of Canadian genetics? We started uh, basically we're at Sydney Royal. Uh, we were packing the truck up to leave Sydney Royal with the sheep and there was a bull that I was interested in was a Canadian bull from uh, the Miller Wilson herd in Canada and I didn't know anything about it. We'd never bred stud cattle, always interested in breeding uh, anything and this bull just caught my eye. Um, had similar attributes to what our pole dorsets have got, like body depth, spring a rib, uh, breed type, not too extreme in size. Um, so I bought the bull, I didn't have any cows, so everyone wanted to sell me heifers and cows and still their studs, thinking, well, I will get, get something in a tatty curl, but basically I just went back to the source and bought embryos. So it's, it's taken us a few years to get going, but all that I'm trying to do is create the Miller-Wilson herd in Australia, so it's not... It's not our doing, it's their, their ability to breed good cattle, not ours. 
we're just uh, we're just doing it on this end, and we've been we've been pretty successful so far. We've um, uh, but we're we're not doing the EBVs on them, which makes it hard to sell uh, big numbers of bulls because a lot of people are obsessed with them. It's like a religion. So we've got our we've got our market. Um, we did get in the largest showing ever of Angus in Australia it was in 2019. Was um, was a featured year for Angus at Sydney Royal, and we got um, champion cow, uh, reserve senior bull, and uh, interbreed group in the in Angus. And the um, judge was. Uh, Willie McLaren, oh, Scotsman. That's right. Well, Willie McLaren is a regular listener to this program and a great judge of cattle. So that's yeah, that's a credit to you. And I see it in amongst your, your cattle. You've got a few uh, Miss Essence in there, sixty-one W and sixty-three W, a well-known, yes. a well-known female family throughout the world. Well, we've we've just concentrated on a, on a few a uh, few females rather than a lot. Like some people tell me to breed good cattle, you need big big numbers because you get a lot of drop-offs. But my idea is you're better with smaller numbers and, and embryo transferring those, you can improve very quickly. But we're basically working off the back of, um, of the, the Miller-Wilson herd. They're, they're giving us advice, which is no different to a lot of people that start Dorset studs or, or start Australian white studs off the back of what we've done. If they listen to us, they'll end up with the same product. But uniformity, you're right, and keeping the same genetics, you get the, should get the yep. same thing. And, and I mean, it's a fascinating story, particularly with the sheep, but obviously with a mind that you have, that you, know, that you can breed, turn your hand to everything. You, your business still growing there, Graham? You guys expanding? Is the market, is, is the, 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 the whole thing, IMF well, thing uh, moving forward? Andy, this has, been, this has been a very, very huge amount of work in a very short space of yeah. time. And whilst the farms are about five and a half thousand acres, um, all the farms that we've put together, it's to the stage that we're just trying to concentrate on the quality, keeping that quality right. So, like, as well as that one ram selling for, for 240,000, uh, he had another embryo brother sell for 85, another one for 75, another one for 45, and her that same ewe had a natural lamb that year and and he made about 20000 as well. So um, all that work with the embryo work is um, very draining, but it's, uh, it's, it's been extremely rewarding. We've got to pinch ourselves to think that we've been involved in creating a brood. Yeah. And uh, that's, yeah, that's something that you would only dream of. Well, it's it's a, a fascinating story and a huge credit to you. And it's not just creating a breed for a breed's sake, but creating a breed to fill a gap in the market that, that is there and, and seemingly is growing. And, and as I said, we discussed on this program a few weeks ago how if we bred a better quality product, could we get an extra premium for it? And, you, and that's that been a hard bit is to, is to finding that premium and outside of your, of, of your stud rams, finding the premium for the actual product itself. And I think that's a, that's a massive credit to you. And hopefully that one's still moving on. Well, I, th I think that it is. It's something that we've got to look at in the sheep industry because uh, if, if you want to make money out of farming in Australia and you're running a sheep operation, it, it's far more lucrative than cattle. Cattle are too slow. Um, they turn grass into body weight at about half what a sheep does. By the time you're, you're joining your heifers, uh, the Australian white is uh, about to drop a second lamb. Uh, five months gestation, not nine. So there's all these... All these things that are, that are pointing towards there's, there's more profit running your farm. So much easier to feed sheep in a drought than it is cattle as well. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of positives to it. And, and we're not just pulling people out of the sheep industry into um, 
into the Australian whites. We've got some some third and fourth generation cattle farmers as far in in Queensland as Longreach was sort of halfway up up Queensland in pretty hot conditions. And one chap up there said he's making three times what he was out of cattle yeah. with with no more work. And he said, that, and when the drought hits, I can feed them. I'd imagine the green the green boys would be looking at this as well because it's certainly uh, if you're into those numbers, you are you're out to well, look, outperforming green yeah, as well. We're having a lot of a lot of grain producers that are running them, they're, they're, they can't run sheep being wool sheep while they're grain cockies because when they get a shower of rain, they should be shearing or crutching or treating flies and, and at that time they're trying to harvest as well. So that's why a lot of a lot of your agriculture areas in Australia have gone right out of sheep because they just can't they can't harvest grain and run, run wool sheep. So those people are coming back in, a lot of our better clients are... Uh, uh, mixed farmers that makes sense Graham I've had a lot of your time it's been f- absolutely fascinating I've been looking forward to, to talking to you for a, for a while now and I think for, for anybody to be able to just go out there and take an animal and design it it sounds simple and I know it isn't and, and I think we can all hear the amount of hard work that you've put into there but uh, congratulations to you for, for achieving what you set out to do uh, with Flying Colours Thanks Andy it's, uh, and hopefully one day we will um We'll get some Australian mites into, into the UK. Okay. Well, if you get yourself into the UK, make sure you look me up on, uh, when you're there and, and, and all of us. For I that will. Matter. Graham, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Andy. Thanks. All the best. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's Top Lines and Tales podcast. And because uh, we're on the subject of sheep this week, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro. But uh, Harbro's foundations, of course, were in the pedigree sheep business, uh, feeding those top quality sheep going back you know, many years. And uh, pedigree lambing's now well underway there. Make sure you look out Harbro's range of high quality sheep feeds there to help you look after those precious lambs. You'll find Harbro on the internet uh, or on social media there, so uh, to go and give them a look there. And while you're on the subject of social media, why not look at her Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs to back up this week's episode as well as uh, other episodes.